Welcome to the Think Christian Podcast, where we talk about faith and pop culture, because there's no such thing as secular. I'm Josh Larson, senior producer over at thinkchristian.net and your host here on the podcast. You know what? You can keep your Super Bowl Sunday. At our house, it's Oscar Sunday that matters. From the fashions on the red carpet to the awkward slash inspirational speeches to the musical numbers and the surprise winners. And, of course, the movies, which is what we're going to talk about here on this episode. Catherine Freeman and Sarah Welch Larson are going to be joining me to discuss three titles that are up for Best Picture at the March 10 ceremony, American Fiction, Oppenheimer, and The Zone of Interest. Before we get to that, I wanted to share a bit of feedback we received about our last episode, where we talked about Fargo Season 5. This comes from listener Tim Eisen, a youth worker in the Lutheran Church for 25 years. Tim weighs in on one angle that J.R. Forsteros and Abby Olchesi helped me think through. The different ways the show's two villains are handled in that season finale. Tim wrote this. Knowing when to apply the law, the perfection of God, always demanding, always condemning, and when to apply the gospel, the saving grace of God, always saving, always comforting, is what it means to be a Christian. In other words, forgiving someone is often trickier than it might seem. It's an art, not a science. As it says in the small catechism, the law must be proclaimed to all people, but especially to impenitent sinners. The gospel must be proclaimed to sinners who are troubled in their minds because of their sin. Lorraine was applying the law to Roy because I cannot think of a more impenitent sinner than he, well, except for his presidential hero. And if you can think of a person more troubled in their minds because of their sin than Ula, I'd like to meet him. Roy needs the law of Lorraine because he doesn't believe he has done anything wrong. Ula needs the gospel of Dot because he doesn't believe he has done anything right. Thank you, Tim. I think that's a really nice expansion of the ideas JR and Abby were getting at. Remember, you can always email us at tcpodcast at thinkchristian.net and share your thoughts. We do love hearing from listeners. Okay, getting back to movies, a quick note that our next gathering of the TC Movie Club is right around the corner. It's going to be 7.30 p.m. Central Time on Wednesday, March 6th. We'll be gathering online to discuss the films of Japanese animator Hayao Miyazaki. Miyazaki's latest, The Boy and the Heron, incidentally my favorite film of 2023, is up for a Best Animated Feature Award at the Oscars. So we're going to be talking about Heron, but also other Miyazaki titles like My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Mononoke, Ponyo, and previous Oscar winner Spirited Away. We'll be considering them specifically within the context of creation care, but as these movie club gatherings go, I'm sure we'll head in some surprising different directions as well. To join us, just sign up at thinkchristian.net slash movie club. Now, there are a couple of reasons you're going to want to do that. Firstly, this is how you'll get the email with the Zoom link for our March 6th gathering. You're going to need that. But also, this is how you're going to get a private link for the video essay I'm making on what Miyazaki and Christianity have in common. We've previously published these on YouTube, but for this one, it's going to be exclusive to movie club members. So again, get all of that by visiting thinkchristian.net slash movie club. 
Okay, from The Boy and the Heron, a best animated feature hopeful, to three films vying for the best picture honor. Let's bring on Catherine Freeman and Sarah Welch Larson to talk American fiction, Oppenheimer, and the zone of interest. Hello, Catherine and Sarah. Welcome to Oscar season, a most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> I'm sure that we've discussed this at some point over the years with you two, but remind me again what what Oscar Sunday looks like. We we all love movies, of course, but you know, and that's what we're here to talk about. But how about the ceremony itself? Will you be planning your day around it, Catherine, or do you skip watching and just look at who won the next day. What, is, what does Oscar Sunday look like for you? No, I love to watch and I like start early because I love the red carpet show. So like I like to see the arrivals and the interviews. And then I didn't do it last year, but before I would do like Oscar bingo, which I think is like just makes it more interesting because I think sure. as the show gets going, um, you know, into hour like two and a half, <laughs> it can be easy to lose interest. The Oscars is one award show that I watch every every year. Like mm. some of the other ones I miss or I'll just watch clips afterwards, but I always watch the Oscars. Yeah. And the bingo card does help if your interest starts to wane. I agree with you. <laughs> I agree for sure. How about you, Sarah? Um, most of the time I'll watch it. Sometimes it's on in the background. Sometimes I'm paying like not too much attention to it, but it'll be on the TV. I like looking up the outfits after the fact because then I can just see them all at once without any commercial <laughs> breaks. Um, and then ever since we got married, my husband and I have this tradition of having an Oscar predictions competition where oh, the loser has to buy the winner tickets to whatever movie of their choice. I oh. always lose. I'm not very good at it. My husband <laughs> is extremely good at predicting. Like he predicted, um, he predicted Parasite winning the year that Parasite won. So um, you you are the film critic in the house, yet always lose the predictions content. Yeah, I think yeah. my opinions about what I like get a little bit too much in the way. Mm. And he pays a little bit more attention to like, what are people actually talking about? What's yeah. the odds? Like who's winning which other competitions out there? So yeah, no, I've never won this competition. And this year, I think he collected by having me buy the two of us tickets to see Godzilla minus one. So usually oh. I end up out on top anyway. Yeah, <laughs> everybody yeah. wins in that case for sure. Sure. Definitely. <laughs> well, let's let's get to three of the 10 Best Picture nominees. These are the ones we want to cover in this conversation. American Fiction, Oppenheimer, and The Zone of Interest. Catherine, let's start with your pick, American Fiction. This stars Jeffrey Wright as Monk Ellison, a novelist who's frustrated with his experience as a black man in the publishing industry. Basically, he writes these sophisticated literary efforts. They don't necessarily center his blackness, and these books have had middling sales. So he's doing this work while watching other authors' books, which to his mind deal in broad African-American stereotypes, just shoot up the bestseller charts. So he's frustrated by this, writes a book like that under a pseudonym, and guess what? It too becomes a hit, and this puts Monk in a bit of an identity crisis and a moral quandary. American Fiction is up for five Oscars, Best Picture, Best Actor for Jeffrey Wright, Best Supporting Actor for Sterling K. Brown, who plays Monk's brother, and then Best Adapted Screenplay for Writer-Director Cord Jefferson, and lastly, Best Score for Composer Laura Karpman. So a lot of enthusiasm there, Catherine, um, for many areas, many aspects of this film. Certainly it impressed Oscar voters. What impressed you about American Fiction? 
actually was really captivated by the family dynamic between Monk and his siblings and his mother, his older sister. I'm assuming she's the oldest and he's the middle. Is played by Tressie Ellis Ross. And then, as you mentioned, his younger brother is played by Sterling K. Brown. And they have like a totally different childhood than he had with his parents. He comes from a very kind of like affluent, upper class sort of Massachusetts black family. And all of the children are high achievers. He has a PhD. Um, but both of his siblings are like medical doctors. And so it just is interesting how he's like estranged from the people in his life. But then even as he attempts to like reconnect, there is this kind of distance that exists between them because of, yeah, I think his like rigidness of his inability to see the world from his from other people's perspectives. So in some ways, he kind of comes off as like a tragic hero. Like it's like he kind of gets in his own way. Like we're rooting for him and we see his frustrations with the world, but also in the ways in which he contributes to the problems he has um, with his siblings and in in the world at large. And so, you know, probably struggling with like depression, which is kind of like the subtext um, kind of early in the film. Um, But I, as someone who has two siblings and am the oldest, like found that to be so interesting about like family of origin, yeah, like reconnecting, like how do you kind of cross years of things that have been unsaid, unspoken hurts? And then like, what is your responsibility to like forgive? And what does that look like in terms of um, relationship? Because obviously there are some situations where you forgive, but maybe you're not in restored relationship, but where you desire restored relationship, what does that look like? And so, yeah, I thought there, you know, it's, it's like a comedy, but also a drama. So a dramedy, I guess, um, mm-hmm. like the Greek tragedies he likes to modernize as his like preferred writing career but i really enjoyed the film i thought it was great yeah i'm with you on the family thing that's absolutely what held the most pull for me too the satire a lot of it was funny but some of it felt sort of obvious and jokey and there were times where it felt almost like two different movies but anytime we got back to that family dynamic and especially when they're dealing these siblings with their a mother who's struggling with memory issues. I found it very affecting and interesting in all the ways you mentioned. Uh, how about you, you, Sarah? Did it all work of a piece for you or, or did one of those elements uh, work better than the others? I have a lot of goodwill towards this movie and um, I love the family dynamic as well. I also think it's really funny. Like there are a lot of zingers and one-liners and I think out of all of the Best Picture nominees, this is probably the one that made me laugh the most. Mm, okay. Um, I do find kind of the way that the movie coheres to be a little bit frustrating. And I think that's kind of the point because the movie isn't trying to be all things in one single narrative. Like that's the that's the point of um, what Monk is trying to do with his book. That's kind of what the movie is getting at as well. And I love, Catherine, that you brought up the the question of forgiveness and being put back into right relationship too, because there's a line that strikes me it, I think it's about midway through the film where somebody talks about like, well, why, why are, why is this book being published? And I believe it's Monk who says like, people want ab- white people specifically want absolution, and they're not going to get it from me because it's not my job to give them that. And I found that kind of dynamic uh, very interesting because there is that question of like, who is actually responsible for fixing the problems of United States American society? And I don't think that it belongs on any one person's shoulders. And I also don't think that the complexity of this story needs to be carried by any one person. There's a lot of different characters just sort of popping in and then popping back out And you get the sense that they all have their own full lives off screen. 
I kind of wish that we had gotten a little bit more of that, especially in the case of the character of Lorraine, who um, I believe is the housekeeper for the family. We see her a little bit and she's got some really lovely line readings as well. Like every single individual line, I think, sticks in my head a little bit. But I wish that I had gotten a little bit more of her and then of some of the other characters, too. And it's interesting, too, that you bring up Lorraine, as I actually found her to be the character in the glimpses that we saw that saw everyone rightly, like Mm -hmm. as their full Mm -hmm. selves Mm -hmm. and still worthy of love. And I feel like he had a very, um, Monk had a very hard time with um, trying to tie like love, affection to like treatment Um, or he he just was like very self-righteous, I think, even towards his like brother's contribution to helping with the mom and I just found that Lorraine kind of played that yeah because there's also this like class dynamic right like Mm -hmm. Lorraine is also African-American but she works for the monk's family um and I just thought it was so interesting around her ability to see the truth of things in a way that like maybe because of money or status or the hurts or just the nature of growing up in that family where it's like um yeah that she could see people for who they were and still be worthy of love despite sometimes engaging really terrible behavior. Yeah, she doesn't really keep any record of wrongs, I think. There's no. that moment when when Monk says, hey, do you want to bring this apron with you when you're moving out of the house? And she looks at it and she says, nope, I've never liked that color. <laughs> but there's no ill will or rancor in no. the line reading either. It's a really lovely moment. And it tells you so much about her as a character that Monk clearly has never considered, even though he's known her for so much of his yeah. own life too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's what I was just thinking, Sarah. Uh, you know, in terms of Lorraine, played, I should say, Myra Lucretia Taylor, wonderful mm-hmm. performance. He, she is maybe the one person, as you're right, Catherine, she does see everyone clearly, but she's maybe the one person whose approval Monk doesn't ever really seek. He's on good terms with her. He appreciates yeah. her. They have a genuine relationship. But I was thinking about this movie in terms of, you know, identity. And, uh, For Christians, you know, where do we look for approval? Uh, Where do we look to find our worth? And the temptation is always to look elsewhere, somewhere else. And, And Monk is looking, you know, he's looking to his colleagues, other writers, to kind of get their approval. He's definitely looking towards the reading public. He wants a hit. He just wants it to be his kind of hit, yeah. right? And he looks he looks towards his family members, I think, even as he's in conflict with them. He looks for them for validation, but I don't know that he ever looks at Lorraine for that. Mm. Um, and again, maybe there's a class issue, as you're saying, at play there, but she's the one who looks at him in the way you're describing the way God looks at us. Yeah. If anyone can can mimic that here in the movie, if there's a character, it is Lorraine, as you're describing that, Catherine. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that before. I was thinking of this aspect actually in terms of another Best Picture nominee, um, Barbie. And mm-hmm. it came to mind what Rosalind Hernandez wrote about Barbie uh, at Think Christian in terms of where we find this validation. You know, the identity crisis of both Barbie yeah. and Ken, really. Mm-hmm. Um, they're always looking for that somewhere that isn't necessarily going to fulfill it. And, and I wanted to pull out this quote from what Rosalind wrote. Like Barbie, like Ken, we might feel that we need to have a specific identity or do certain things to earn God's love, but God loves and delights in us simply for the fact that God created us. And it's not a one-to-one, but I do see that delight a little bit in Lorraine, maybe the way she watches this family, caring for them, and, and in some ways seeing what would be best for him, but best for them, but maybe not being in a position to help that along. 
Yeah. And I love, yeah, what you said, Sarah, about not keeping a record of wrongs, because even the thing like her graciousness of in that moment where she's like, your dad bought it for me, so I wore it, but I don't, you know, want to take it with me into this next life. This, uh, yeah, I just really love, and I think about the moment she had with Sterling K. Brown's character, who has some challenges, um, is going through like, I guess, a midlife crisis and makes some really poor choices. And I think she can acknowledge that they're bad choices. But I think where Monk might be quick to, like, judge or cast his brother out, she is much more like, no, I want him to be a part of this big celebration as she's getting married. And I that just, it reminds me of, like, Jesus and the, like, the way in which, you know, he leaves the 99 for the one and that the ways in which he, like, welcomed the prodigal son back of, like, and the brother is like so confused. Like I've been here, I've been loyal, I've been the good son and you still love me. And I just think that's like such an important, I think to your point about identity, about the ways in which we can be fully ourselves with God. Like he knows us in a way that probably no other person ever will. And he sees like ugliness and he sees sin and he still says, that's mine. I I love her. I love him. I created them. Um, and there's not something we have to do to earn that just by nature of being his, his creation. And I, yeah, I think that's really beautiful. Like the tie of like the ways in which, yeah, Lorraine sees him fully (laughs) good and bad, pretentious and like desiring to be a good son and can take the fullness of that and still say, you know, I love him. Mm. Yeah. And that, you know, I don't think this is a spoiler, but there's a wedding scene for for Lorraine and it's such a lovely celebration where everyone does come together. Not everything is solved, but it is this it is this um, momentary peace and community um, and healthy relationship, right relationship, at least being experienced for that for that night. So that's a great scene in American fiction as well. Before we move on, anything else we need to hit on that? Uh, we're good? Okay. I mean, um, I, I yeah, do think ahead, that, that question of Lorraine accepting each of the members of the family that she's been serving so long for who they are is also like thematically very coherent with the rest of the movie. Like there is mm. there is this piece where Monk is literally writing under an assumed name and a, a pseudonym so that he can publish this book that he wrote as a joke that he actively hates, does not like that he's written, and yet it's the thing that's bringing him the most success as well. And so he's also dealing with this identity crisis and like, well, am I the sum of the work that I've done that everybody else recognizes? Like, what does the rest of my work actually matter? Kind of weighed against that. And I think Lorraine brings that sort of cohesive whole that nobody else I think in Monk's life is fully able to see. And she doesn't even know that he's written this book either. It's the, kind of this secret that he's been carrying with himself yeah. for most of the rest of the movie, um, other than um, other than his agent, who's the only other person who knows his identity. <laughs> Sarah, that's such a good point because after you said that, I thought about it. And like the, you know, the thing is, Monk wants to tell these stories, these complex, diverse, wide stories of African-American life. And his frustration is that it's like this very narrow thing. Mm-hmm. And that Lorraine is the character that sees the fullness of him, the complexity mm. of his life, and is like, I love that. And that, mm. like the thing that he is seeking from like the audience, you know, to your point, Josh, about where we seek identity or love, the thing that he's seeking from the buying public, he has. He just doesn't recognize its value because, you know, he assumes like, oh, this is just our family name. I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. I, I love that we ended up talking so much about Lorraine. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Great, great character. And yeah, you're right, Sarah, a crucial one in, in more ways than maybe I initially realized. <laughs> um, so that is American fiction. Let's turn to your pick next, Sarah, which is The Zone of Interest. Mm-hmm. And this one's a heavy watch. Yes. Uh, a wrenching experience. To me, a very worthwhile one. Maybe you can tell us about the film, Sarah, and then what your experience was with it. Yeah, so The Zone of Interest is uh, Jonathan Glazer's very loose adaptation of a 2014 novel of the same name by Martin Amis. And it is about the commandant of Auschwitz and his family as they kind of build an idyllic life for themselves in the literal shadow of the concentration camp that the commandant, Rudolf Hoss, is, is running. We never see the interior of the camp, but we can hear it in almost every single section of the movie. It's just ongoing, literal background noise that insists upon itself more and more as the movie goes along. Um, So you hear the gunshots, you hear the screaming, you hear the constant churn of the furnace as it's going on, as this family is just going about their daily business, you know, running the garden, entertaining guests, uh, celebrating a birthday. And it's a deeply chilling portrait of the kinds of lies that we tell ourselves about, about you know, the evils that we are capable of committing, I think. And I, I, I find it to be a very difficult watch. I also found it to be a worthwhile one. I also feel very conflicted about it, too, because mm. there's kind of an elision of the violence that's happening in the background. Like, you're left to imagine it to a certain extent. And at the same time, I think it's also a much more respectful view of the atrocities at Auschwitz rather than just showing people being victimized over and over brutally and repeatedly. Like there's a very long history of Holocaust Mm -hmm. films. And so if you've seen a lot, like you've seen a lot. And so this kind of turns the camera lens back around on the people who are committing those atrocities and says, these are also normal people. These are actual human beings and yet they're also capable of these atrocities. And I find that very chilling. I find it deeply upsetting. Um, I've seen the movie twice now at this point, mm. and I'm not sure that I can ever sit through it again. And I did find it to be a worthwhile exercise, and I'm a little bit unnerved by the fact that I was able to also treat it as a thought exercise, if that makes any uh, sense. Yeah. It does, because... This one, despite the Best Picture nomination and largely positive reviews, it's also gotten some very visceral negative reviews from mm-hmm. prominent critics. And and I think they're struggling with some of those same points, Sarah, from, from what I've read. And the idea of this as an exercise particularly, like, is this a cinematic experiment? And should this subject be something that we're experimenting with? I think I... I understand and respect those reservations and probably had some of them watching as well, Mm -hmm. but I probably fall ultimately along the lines where you did, Sarah. I I found this to be among the Holocaust movies that I've seen, uh, maybe the one that came closest to implicating the audience and, mm-hmm. and me. And you were, you were kind of touching on this. I think you used the word convicting, right? Yes. Yeah. Just again, not because there's any direct historical connection necessarily, but this idea of being able to identify in some way with a family that wants a healthy home, wants a beautiful garden, wants to have these birthday parties. And what, you know, what are you willing to overlook or deny in order to have that? I mean, it very different scales, it's a question we probably almost all have to face, right? What, you know, to pursue our own version of happiness, 
what are we what are we willing to be the cost of others? That's a that's an existential universal question that um, is maybe not the exact one this movie is after, but just from where I'm at watching it, you know, it it came to mind. I was wondering, Sarah, you know, this idea of convicting. Do you think uh, again trying to apply it in different ways? Do you think there's a way the zone of interest might be especially convicting for Christians at all? Um, for me, I think it's the willingness to watch atrocities go by and not assume that we're connected with them in any way at all. And some of this, I think, also just comes from being extremely online and, and following the constant churn of there is injustice in the world. What are you going to do about it? And are you going to watch it? Are you going to consume it? And then are you going to do something about it? And does that doing something about it actually make any difference in and of itself? Mm. So kind of taking it like another additional step further. Like there is, I, I think that there is a way in which the world in which we live kind of in, encourages us both to watch and to also do nothing at the same time or to do nothing that is actually substantial. And so here with the zone of interest, I think, the thing that I am convicted by is both just watching this family stand by, well, they're not exactly doing nothing. They're literally running the camps and they've bought into the ideology that has caused these camps to be built in the first place. Just the language that they use as they're talking about going about their daily lives. But then also um, treating it as though it's just, this is how the world should be and can be, you know, like not being willing to actually change anything because this is, you know, the quote-unquote natural order of things, not that the mm -hmm. natural of order of things should ever be anything like that kind of injustice, so. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. That's And that's sort of a, it's conviction in the present. I was thinking also how it, it can call, it can be convicting for the church to look to the past, um, mm -hmm. you know, and not be blind. Let's just say, I don't want to spoil it, but the zone of interest where it goes, it, it makes some bold choices beyond this very bold basic setup. And one of these where it goes at the end reaches to the present where we are now and mm -hmm. asks us about how we think about the past, right? The movie has been doing this all along, but it explicitly asks us what's our relationship with the past. And I think I think for the church, there is a there is something to be taken there about not ignoring the the atrocities in some cases that the church has been complicit in or yes. guilty of. And, and this can be, you know, we, we've talked on a previous episode in relation to reservation dogs, how the, uh, the denomination I'm a part of, the Christian Reformed Church, has had to um, look at the relationship in terms of indigenous schools that the church mm -hmm. was a part of. And, mm -hmm. and so these are all things that the church cannot sweep under the rug. Um, and if nothing else, a movie like The Zone of Interest for me is not allowing us to sweep something like the Holocaust on the rug, which sounds insane, except for the time we're living in where, yes, yeah. you know, they're going back to your point about being online and where there are movements to do exactly that. Mm -hmm. um, and there are movements to sanitize history, which, you know, we shouldn't allow to happen outside or inside the church, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Can I just say something? So I d haven't been able to see the movie yet because now I live in a small town, but just in like listening to you guys talk, um, I'm also struck by like just the setup of the premise of like the idea of a family, right? Like I think oftentimes people think of like Nazis as these like extraordinarily evil people, but the idea of like bringing his family there shows like the regular like the banality of it or the regular, like regular people were kind of caught up in that. And I think 
to something you said, Sarah, I thought was really profound is like social media habituates us into like, this is just the way the world works. We have access to all this information. We don't have to do anything. We witness these atrocities. We hear about these atrocities in the past. And I think we're very quick to like absolve ourselves because we're like, oh, we're not like them or, you know, there's not anything I really can do. But yeah, like I like the sort of the the idea of like it being convicting and bringing us in and like, no, we're all respond like this is all of our histories. And then we this could have been, but for the grace of God, you know, like mm-hmm. someone, you know, or someone in your family or it could be someone in your family. Um, mm-hmm. And then what does it look like? going forward so yeah yeah, i like that setup i mean i think that yeah i can't wait to see it yeah (laughs) yeah and the you know the the family element one bit of that catherine that really struck me uh, which seems you know banal but maybe it's because i'm a dog person is just the family dog and seeing it trotting around the garden like you know you'd want any dog to be happy and have a have a yard to to you know just roam around and it was the juxtaposition of my instinctual like, oh, that dog looks like he has a nice life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that dog, you know, it, it, those yeah. were the little moments that happened over and over while watching the film is it just call it forces you to to like swallow your initial reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it happens over and over again. And one thing that the way that the movie is shot as well is like there's a very static camera that's set up at different points around the house. It almost feels like you're watching a reality TV show. Oh, interesting. And then you see the different characters walking around the house, going about their business and going about their lives. There's almost no close-ups. It's almost all like in the middle ground. So you're seeing the whole person as they're going about their business. And you see the dog run in and out of the different rooms or, or you see the children playing in their own rooms and kind of assimilating this life that they're living into the way that they play as well in a, in a way that I find particularly chilling, I think, because these children don't know any better and they have no way to know any better. Yeah. Um, and, and that, I think, is one of the most upsetting pieces of all throughout the entire film. Yeah. Yeah. There is a documentary like feel too much of it, which, mm-hmm. you know, does lend it that element of authenticity. Mm-hmm. So that's the zone of interest. Uh, unless there was anything else, Sarah, you wanted to add about that one. Um, we did note that, um, you know, as Catherine said, hard to find if you're not in a in, living near a major city. But I do believe uh, right now, so by the time this episode airs, it should be available um, VOD mm-hmm. if it does sound like one listeners are interested in checking out. And it's a harrowing watch, but it is very much worth it. I, I do recommend it quite a lot. Yeah. I'd agree. I'd mm-hmm. agree. Okay, let's turn to Oppenheimer, which is the film with the most nominations this year, 13, which makes it the front runner to win Best Picture. And we have here a biopic of sorts of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the scientist who led the American development of the atomic bomb during World War II. Comes from director Christopher Nolan, known for Inception, Interstellar, and and three of the best Batman films. Nolan is nominated for directing and writing the screenplay. Killian Murphy has a Best Actor nod for his performance as Oppenheimer. Um, Catherine, what was this one you saw uh, when it came out as, you know, sort of the Barbenheimer experience in the summer? Is that when you saw it or did you catch up with it later? And, and what did you think about it? Okay. I just, I'm not a fan of the three-hour movie trend. <laughs> I need an intermission. I need an intermission. And it's not like, <laughs> I feel like Avengers was long, but you know, with an action movie, you can like leave and not miss anything crucial. Like they're still in the, you know, like, okay, we, you can pick they're up. They're still really, fighting. I got popcorn and they're pretty, still fighting. Yeah. 
and I just felt like with movies like Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon, I just I needed to be able to watch it in my own house or I could like mm. pause and like come back because I didn't want to miss it. So I didn't see it in the theater. Um, I did watch it in my house on um, VOD, and I really liked it. I didn't think I would. I didn't think I would, despite like loving the Christopher Nolan Batman's. I, I, I don't know. I just really loved it. I think the way it's shot, like the sort of back and forth, the sort of like dis, the sort of disorientation that that brings. And then I think his own, um, the way in which it mimics I like Oppenheimer's own disorientation or I just, I think from the beginning of the movie, I felt like he never really felt like he belonged anywhere. Like he just really wanted to be with his thoughts. And so I feel like the, the, um, and he was just like so much smarter and, you know, all these things. Um, and maybe it's because I'm like a PhD student and I can like relate <laughs> to the like deadlines that you have to meet when you're just like, oh, I'd like to ponder on this idea for a while. Um, but yeah, I just really, I really, I really enjoyed the film. I really enjoyed also to um, Robert Downey's performance in addition to Cillian Murphy. Um, yeah, I thought it was great. Yeah, I struggled. I, I struggled a little bit more with the two parts, the going back and forth and how they related. But to the movie's credit, I think it's because I was so invested in Oppenheimer's main story. Um, and, and also, you know, the the sort of um, pseudo trial he's put under, which takes place later. Uh, and then on top of that, we had the Robert Downey Jr. storyline, too, which which I thought on its own was interesting, but not compared to those other parts uh, that. I think all of that worked for you, though, Sarah. You're a huge fan of Oppenheimer. I am. Uh, so tell us more about that. Yeah, um, I, I think, and I'm not necessarily like in the bag for Christopher Nolan, but I really like a lot of his work. And I think this kind of feels almost like a culmination of his, his highly technical um, symmetry that he tends to like in his plot structures. Um, and I love that that symmetry kind of extends to a lot of the dialogue that gets repeated throughout the movie. Like we, you kick off with the line, who would want to justify their entire life? And then Nolan spends the rest of the movie kind of answering that question and saying like, no, no one ever wants to have to justify their entire life. And yet we're going to do it anyway. And we're going mm -hmm. to litigate this man's work and his responsibility and culpability in the creation of this weapon of mass destruction. Um, and I think it also does a really good job of examining the level of responsibility without the ability to control anything mm -hmm. that comes of it. And I think that that's something that happens with a lot of the characters throughout the movie, Oppenheimer most of all. But I also think about uh, General, I, I believe it's Leslie Mann, um, played by Matt Damon, who is in charge, technically in charge of the Manhattan Project. But every time he tells the scientists under his purview that they, they need to do something or, or keep something secret, they turn right around and, and they open up all of those secrets to each other so that they can do their jobs a little bit better. Like, nobody is capable of controlling the results of any of their work. And I think Nolan does a really good job of mapping that responsibility and then also mapping that, like what actually happens after the fact. Once you drop the bomb, there's no going back. The atmosphere is going to ignite or at least there's going to be a chain reaction of... Um, you know, the cat's out of the bag. Like you, you can't do anything about it. Once the idea is in the air, it, it's just there forever and the entire world gets completely changed. And that kind of knocked me over in a way because um, like a lot of Nolan movies, I think there's a sense of inevitability to it. And yet the way that the film closes out with that sense of inevitable doom 
involved a turn of character perspective that I wasn't fully expecting, but that felt completely right. Because mm-hmm. it gets at the both the importance of Oppenheimer, the man, and his role in the project, and then also the complete and total pettiness of Robert Downey Jr.'s yeah. uh, Admiral Straws as well. And they're, they're two such perfect foils for each other. Like that back and forth really works for me. And I think that final third of the movie also really works for me in a way that I know didn't necessarily work for everybody. Um, but I think you need the fallout after the explosion of the bomb. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and the the terror in Oppenheimer's eyes when he realizes that element you're talking about, Sarah, that it is ultimately out of his control because this is a man, to your point about his intelligence, Catherine, thinks that he can understand and like his knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he comes to realize that his knowledge has been used for power that he can no longer control. Um, That's very, that's a very arresting experience to travel along with him. Yeah. I think it's interesting too, like related, like, I think there's a scene, I think with, I can't remember the name, but, um, it, the scientist played by Kenneth Branagh, who says, you know, like you're an American Prometheus, like nothing can touch you kind of thing. You've like given in, and that scene, I was really struck by that part of the reason why he's like even allowed to be a part of the Manhattan project is because he's like this genius, but he has these communist ties, which, you know, they make it seem like, I think in the way in which maybe it's the story is told in popular imagining is like, oh, that was something retroactively. But it was like, no, they knew all along like that he had had all these flirtations with the Communist Party and um, workers rights, different workers rights groups. And so it just was like an interesting the ways in which I think he thought his knowledge of power, like he could do things unscathed. And I think even there's a scene with his wife, Kitty, who basically says like, you think you can do whatever you want. And then we're all supposed to feel sorry for you. And it, and I thought that was like Mm. such an interesting conversation in the sense that, yeah, he is clearly a genius. Like that's not a question, but the ways in which the genius gave him a false sense of power or security or untouchability or control, as you guys have said, um, and sort of the realization that it's actually not like that that's an illusion. And, and so I thought a lot about like the illusion of control. I also thought about like just the larger question of like ends justifying the means or like Mm -hmm. that these, that the means don't matter. And, yeah, and then like all along he's faced with these like little compromises, little compromises, and then it's like in the end he sees like global destruction. And I I just thought it was so interesting in the way in which Nolan doesn't portray it as like this one moment I'm gonna make this atomic bomb, and then you know Hiroshima. It was like you get to see the sort of um, the ways in which the illusion of control or power confused him all along the way Mm. until it was Mm. too late to like see that it was an illusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you were talking about, um, I think this idea of the ends justifying in the means, and that sort of relates to the question I wanted to ask you, Sarah. Um, I know you've thought about this in terms of the movie's vision of justice, Mm -hmm. um, and how it might sit alongside a biblical conception mm-hmm. of justice. So so maybe give me give me a little bit more about what you're thinking along those lines. Yeah, I think those threads kind of permeate the entire movie, but they're distilled fairly early on when 
Oppenheimer is asking his good friend uh, Isidore Robbie, played by David Krumholtz, who is fantastic in yes, this movie, by the way. He's really so good. great in it. And he says, he declines the offer. He says, I'm not going to join the Manhattan Project, specifically because when you drop a bomb, it will fall on the unjust and the just yeah. alike. And these line. are two Jewish characters who are speaking back and forth with each other. They're quoting Jewish scripture. But this is also something that pops up in Matthew 5.45. You know, the sun rises on the good and the evil alike and the rain falls on the just and the unjust that's in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's something that I think Oppenheimer isn't necessarily always as conscious of in the same way that Izzy is as a character. I, th I think Izzy is the moral backbone of the story while Oppenheimer is kind of the theoretical backbone and the person driving mm. this project forward in the way that he needs to go. And yet, despite Oppenheimer's own inability to see what he's doing as being something that hurts other people. Like he's a womanizer. He is um, a very difficult man to deal with. He kind of leads his own cult of personality at the schools that he teaches at. And he is incapable of listening to his peers in a way that makes them feel respected or heard necessarily, even when he probably should. But Izzy is aware of this. And I think the movie is also aware of this, that once you enable acts of injustice, those acts of injustice are going to be enacted whether you want to take back that power or not. You create the bomb, it's going to be dropped. And I think that one of the scenes that kind of strikes at that the most in a way that I find most chilling is, is the moment when American leadership is discussing where they're going to drop the bomb, which bombs they're going to drop, yeah. when they're going to do it. And one of the men in the room says, we've got this list of 12 cities that we're considering as targets. Oh, no, wait, never mind. It's a list of 11 cities. Kyoto is a beautiful city and my wife and I like honeymooned there. Um, and that's really chilling. The, the fact that you would be willing to take the lives of so many people on or off a list just because of the way that they have affected you personally. And I, I think that that's a thread that goes throughout the rest of the film too. A lot of the legal troubles that Strauss runs into post-bomb have to do with his own inability to let go of perceived slights or real slights towards his own person too, because he's very petty as well. I think that brings it a little bit back to zone of interest, the Kyoto scene where they're mm -hmm. discussing those cities because this, this general, or he may be a cabinet member, can only think about this in terms of his personal lens mm -hmm. and what was, mm -hmm. you know, what was pleasurable to him that that's all kyoto means to him it's his it's his little garden in the backyard never mind that what they're actually discussing is the concentration camp over the wall <laughs> um so yeah just there's a point of connection there yeah and i think it's also crucial i i know that there was a it was a topic of I would say I will say discourse and maybe not full discussion um, over the summer about whether or not Oppenheimer the film should have depicted the actual dropping of the bombs or not. Mm. I'm on the side that says I, I think that it was a good choice not to because the movie wasn't trying to tell that story. It was trying to talk about the culpability of these men who were involved in that project. Kind of like the same way that Killers of the Flower Moon is very much from the perspective of the gangsters who are committing the crimes in question. So it's more about art that is from the perspective of the evildoer in a way that condemns what evil is being done, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. 
And there's that harrowing scene, too, um, after the bomb has been dropped, and it's almost a rally at Los Alamos they're having, essentially celebrating the news. Um, and this is this is one of, you know, Oppenheimer's moves towards that terror I talked about, and he has a vision of the burned bodies of the victims that, you know, so, so I think it, I think the movie is not willfully ignoring that reality. Yes. And a touch like that finds a way to incorporate it while maintaining the perspective you're talking about, Sarah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So do you think, Sarah, uh, you know, with your expertise as an Oscar predictor <laughs> that Oppenheimer will win Best Picture? I have a sneaking suspicion it'll win. I'll also be, and my personal favorite to win, I think is one that probably won't come away with the the trophy, but I would love to see past lives take it. That's probably okay. wishful thinking on my own part, but I, I do think Oppenheimer will win. I do like past lives. I like it better than Oppenheimer. As a matter of fact, <laughs> it has zero chance of taking best picture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do you do you have a, a favorite uh, of any of the nominees, Catherine? No, I don't get my hopes up. I, I feel like you can never <laughs> really tell. I feel like it's like, um, I do love reading. Is it... I think it's a Hollywood reporter that does like the blind Oscar voter thing every mm -hmm. year. I love reading those. And every year I'm taking them like, this is so chaotic. Like, who knows? Like, yes. if it's this personal person's like <laughs> vendetta against this totally. person is what's driving the like vote. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm always shocked. So, I mean, kudos to people that try to predict. I'm, I like to go with the like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just wait and see what happens. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, happy Oscar watching to the both of you. Uh, beyond the Oscars, uh, Sarah, what what's going on at the Seeing and Believing newsletter? Did you did you draw the draw the Dune Part Two assignment, or is that is that one going to Kevin McLenathan? Kevin McLenathan will be writing about Dune Part Two. I will be podcasting about Dune Part Two with Bright Wall Dark Room, though, so I oh, will excellent. get the chance to cover it um, in some fashion and in some sense. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, by the time this episode is up, I believe Kevin's review of Dune will be up as well. So you can find us over at seeingandbelieving.substack.com. Sounds good. So Catherine, anything you're up to besides, I'm assuming you're creating a countdown calendar for the new Beyonce album. Other than that, <laughs> other than that how are you filling your days? And is this a good time to pin you down and and say you agree to write a Think Christian piece about that album for us. I would, I would actually, I don't, yes, that's a tentative. Yes. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, that was a long way around to a very tentative yes. Because I, in my heart, I would love to. I also, this is my last semester of PhD core, uh, wow. coursework. So you are the, almost there. I'm almost done with the coursework. Please. So I don't know, but I would love to. I am counting it down. I am like thinking back of like pictures of me and my like Western wear in college to like post. Oh, yeah. I'm yes. very happy I went with like the rhinestone cowgirl theme for my <laughs> Renaissance concert outfit because I can just yeah. re-wear it for act two. <laughs> there you go. Nice. <laughs> so yeah, no, no, that's, yeah, that's the main thing in my world. I'm counting down to Beyonce's country act. <laughs> Excellent. And we will not put that pressure on you. We, we, would, we would never get in the way of your academic work, Catherine. But I will touch base and ask again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you both for, for doing this little Oscar preview with me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yes, so fun. What about the other Best Picture nominees, you ask? Don't worry. We've got you covered over on the website. 
thinkchristian.net, where you'll find articles on contenders like Barbie, Killers of the Flower Moon, and Past Lives. And then on a previous episode of the podcast, Rosalind Hernandez and Abby Olchesi joined me to talk about The Holdovers, another Best Picture nominee and a really, really good one. You can find that episode in our feed. We'll also link to all of that good stuff in the show notes for this episode. We'd love to get your thoughts on any of the Best Picture nominees or, you know, if you watch the Oscars themselves and want to give us a review, please send that our way. Email us at tcpodcast at thinkchristian.net. You can also find us on social. We're at Think Christian on Facebook and Twitter slash X. If you've been a regular listener for a while now, would you mind leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts? Star ratings are great, but if you don't mind leaving a few sentences of a review, that would really help us to reach new listeners. And for those of you who are watching on YouTube, you can help us out by just clicking subscribe. Thank you in advance for doing that. The TC Podcast is a listener-supported production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. You can visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Basselin. I'm Josh Larson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to consider how another corner of our pop culture fandom connects with our faith. I'd suggest diving into Netflix's new live-action Avatar The Last Airbender series if you want to be ready for that.